There is no error with your audio outputs. Do not attempt to fix any sound issues. We are monitoring you with this device. We control your options and settings. We are transmitting through your internet connection, but our signal is actually entering your mind, sending electrical impulses into the very tissues of your brain. Try to stay calm. We've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Well, hello, and welcome to another thrilling episode of the Paranoia Podcast. I am Olaf Phillips. I'm the publisher of Paranoia Magazine, and he is... Ron Patton, editor-in-chief of Paranoia. Yes, you are the editor-in-chief of Paranoia and all-around conspiracy nutcase, uh, Ron Patton. But what kind of nut? (laughs) That is the question. (laughs) Oh, that is quite a question. Mm. Hey, I'm saying uh, cashew. Uh, More like pistachio, but close. Cashew uh, at times, but uh, primarily pistachio. But hey... Who really cares, right? You know what? It doesn't matter at all. Okay. At least I'm not a fruit like (laughs) some people. (laughs) Well, I'm a conspiracy dork, so we got it even. There you go. All right. So the plan, Ron, had been to go through our top five conspiracies of the world. We discussed it. Uh, We have lists. But Hmm. two of our new listeners to our legendary ever-present podcast here ask me the same question Mm. yes and and so i'm thinking we're going to talk about that okay what are we going to talk about well the apparently there was a show uh out on the internet that was going into the disappearances at national parks oh yes and I have an alternate theory about those. Um, so our two listeners, uh, Talon and Taylor, uh, the two T's, mm-hmm. asked, asked me to go off on it and to discuss it with you and to, to kind of break down this mysterious uh, disappearances in the national parks thing. Right. Right. So to lay a little groundwork, uh, since you may or may not, you the listener may or may not be aware of this, there's a guy. His name is David Paulides. I may have said that wrong. I'm sorry, David. Um, He has been documenting for many years uh, disappearances in the national parks. And he's found some very bizarre trends. Now, when I heard about these disappearances, you know, obviously I thought they were a little weird. And I started to look into it some more. Now, David doesn't get into what is actually happening. He's, he, as far as I know, focuses on categorizing the types of disappearances and the quantities. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote that he had with an interview with George Knapp. He says, people disappear in the wilderness all the time. We're talking about something different. The, these are unusual things that don't, seem, that don't make sense, that happen to cluster together. In three or four, sometimes as many as 20 or 30 people missing in one location. Obviously, that's kind of strange. Now, David has gone out and he's actually contacted the National Parks, um, you know, the, the Department of the Interior and the National Parks Rangers, and he's asked them for details about this. And he's gotten many different runaround stories. Uh, he's been told it's classified. Uh, Whoa. But, yeah, <laughs> I know, classified, right? National Parks. Um, he's been told that they don't keep records. He's been told that there's no problem. He's been told all kinds of stuff. But still, he continues to document these disappearances again and again and again. So on the surface of it, that these are just disappearances. They're weird. They're anomalous. They're crazy. And he just documents it. There, There is a subtext. Now, the, to, to be fair to the listeners, you know, we, 
we bill this as us attempting to explain stuff that people may not know in the conspiracy world. Mm-hmm. The theories range from Bigfoot abductions. The Bigfoot is going and abducting 20 or 30 people at a time and eating them or mating with them or doing whatever Bigfoot does with 20 or 30 people. Um, <laughs> abductions, people have been abducted by UFOs. Uh, they've right. just disappeared. The government's taken them. I mean, there's a whole range of, of theories as to where these people are going. Mm-hmm. Now, when I started looking into it, um, I noticed something rather odd. That there's a guy back in the 1990s named Tall. And back in the 90s, he was a, a fairly legendary figure who supposedly had he had supposedly gotten into these underground tunnels and had an exhaustive map of these underground tunnels and, and where they surface and what they're for and what they link together. So for shits and giggles one day, I took that map, the one from, I think it's 1990, and I overlaid Pauline's map on top of it. And guess what I found, Ron? What? The clusters of disappearances were clustered around installations that he had flagged as top secret bases mm. for the most part. Now, this this is, you know, the map I have is is ca- most of California, <laughs> southern Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma. You know, it's not Colorado. It's not by any stretch of the imagination the entire country, which David does have. Uh, David Pauletz, and and you should get his book, Missing 411. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting is that they overlaid fairly well, that there there were concentrations that didn't correspond to positions on Tall's map, but the largest concentrations were on Tall's map as underground bases. Now, if that's true, that changes the dynamic of what we're looking at, that, that, that no longer is this just, well, people are missing and things are weird. You know, we get a lot of that in the conspiracy world, but, but no longer is it all about just people vanishing and Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that I, I don't, you know, maybe you disagree, but I don't think Bigfoot can abduct 20 or 30 people at once. Yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right. And I just don't think uh, Bigfoot really has that temperament, you know? No, I mean, it's... Yeah. Every sighting of Bigfoot is always accompanied by Bigfoot farting and running away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're like, they're they're not too sociable. No, it, no, it's like I'm I'm hiding in a bush with a camera. Hey, there's Bigfoot. Okay, I'm yeah. off. Yeah, <laughs> you know this isn't Bigfoot's not chasing people down. No, I'm, for beef jerky perhaps, but other than that, no. No, You're, not beef jerky. People jerky. Got to get this right, Ron. We've got to okay. be accurate. Yeah, that's just in the commercials. Oh, I know, I know. It's, Disinfo. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. Right. Ron, you're spreading disinformation. Okay. Unintentionally, so therefore it's misinformation. So let's get it right. Okay. We need to be precise here. Okay. Now, if indeed these clusters are accurate and Tall's map is accurate, it seems to indicate that people are being abducted and taken and sometimes returned. You know, there there's a story where a, a little boy disappeared he if i remember correctly he was this could be misinformation but as far as i remember he was hiking with his family or like a cub scout troop or something and he was in between two adults Mm -hmm. they they were like 30 feet apart and there was there was a natural bend in the in the uh, trail and the first adult goes around the, the bend the child goes around the bend the second adult goes around the bend and the child is gone Okay. Okay. Everybody goes crazy. Airplanes are searching. Helicopters are searching. Harrison Ford's probably searching in his Jet Ranger, which he mm-hmm. does do, by the way. Everybody's looking for this poor child. Well, like a week later, the kid turns up six miles away, naked, shivering in the cold on the other side of a mountain. Wow. Reminds me of Travis Walton. You know, It does. Body. Yeah, it really does. And so... Nobody can provide a rational explanation of how in, in four or five days a, ch- a small child like six years old mm-hmm. hiked six miles over a mountain. It took off all his clothes and decided to shiver in the wilderness and is dazed and confused. 
but mm. that, that's what we're talking about. That's the weirdness that we're talking about here. So right. if these disappearances correspond to Tall's map, that changes the dynamic significantly. Hmm. That now means that for whatever reason, around these subterranean bases, hidden bases, whatever you want to call them, people are being taken. Right? Okay. Has this been a historic has there been a historical precedent of missing people, I mean like hundreds of years ago, or is this a recent phenomenon? I well, Pauline says for Polyds, it's a recent phenomenon. It goes back to when he started keeping records. Okay. But I would argue to you that at least for the for the last half century or more, people have been disappearing in significant numbers. And, and I can show you what I mean in a minute. Okay. Now, from my perspective as a researcher, when I saw that overlay, things changed. And I started thinking, well, gee, who's taking these people and why? Right? Mm-hmm. They're disappearing around underground bases. That seems to indicate the military. Or maybe the military is not the right word. Let's just say the shadow government. Mm-hmm. This idea that there's a government that exists that's outside of the government that we vote for that can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. There, there's an alternative government that exists. Now, Now, in, in conspiracy theory, sometimes they call that like deep deep government, deep politics. These are the people that don't move when new presidents come in. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we're talking about an alternative power structure. Right. If they are taking these people, it opens up a whole realm. And and some of the options, I think you're very well versed at, like Mill Lab. Mm -hmm. Now, Mill Lab, you probably know more about Mill Lab than I do. And you probably would want to speak to it, but Mill Lab is a definite option. Right. Well, and there's a really good book, um, I believe, by Dr. Helmut Lamner, who, you know, talked about uh, screen memories uh, of people being abducted thinking they were aliens, but actually uh, it was more like a uh, mind control abduction. And so that's sort of the premise about my labs, per se. Now, if my lab is abducting these people and Mm -hmm. brainwashing them Mm -hmm. or just conducting experiments on them, that seems to explain it. But I would argue to you that the the problem is actually so so vast that it's it's not completely my lab. Mm Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that I started to do when this happened is I started to keep a careful eye out, right, for for large groups of people missing because it exists. I mean, large numbers of people exist. For example, in a recent article on the by the Independent, mm-hmm. they the name the title of the article was 10,000 unaccompanied refugee children are missing from Europe." Okay? At least 10,000 child refugees have gone missing since arriving in Europe. Mm-hmm. Around 5,000 have vanished from Italy alone, with another 1,000 unaccounted for in Sweden, Europol's chief of staff, Brian Donald, has said. Now, obviously, their bend is they think that these these kids are being funneled into, into uh, tr- you know, sex trafficking and, and a lot of other nefarious activities, which could be. Mm-hmm. But 10,000 is a lot. Now, I went and looked a little more, and if you look at the Missing Migrants Project, Mm -hmm. between 2014 and 2016, they have found evidence that over 6,000 people, migrants, have gone missing in Europe alone. Now, some of these people have died in in boating accidents. These are refugees. Mm -hmm. You know, some people have disappeared crossing the borders. But using public domain sources like newspapers, The Guardian and you know, all kinds of newspapers, they've determined that there are roughly 6,000 refugees and migrants that have disappeared. Now, that doesn't count like sub-Saharan Africa, which is torn by civil war, where entire van- you know, entire villages vanish. Mm-hmm. Now, as isolated incidents by themselves, that doesn't seem to be odd. You, you think mm-hmm. to yourself, well, they're refugees, right? They're on a boat. It sinks. They all die. That's like 500 people, Right. Yep. But if you take it in its totality and you look at the entire group, between 2014 and 2016, 
One group is saying there are 10,000 kids missing. Another group is saying there are 6,000 people missing. Well, that's in the neighborhood of 16,000 people. That's a lot. You know what that reminds me of is <clears throat> during World War II, uh, you know, the Nazis were involved in what was called the Liebensborn Project. And they were involved in some, you know, genetic engineering. Um, and they were, you know, trying to create the so-called master race. And so there were a lot of thousands and thousands of blonde-haired, blue-eyed children that went missing right after World War II. And guess where a lot of them ended up? Argentina. Yeah, in South hey, America. I guess right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what that re kind of reminded me of. Right. And so I, when you were talking about that, you know, I was also sort of surmising that, you know, some of these migrants or refugees could probably be used for, you know, human trafficking or slave labor uh, and also as organ donors or not organ donors, really, but basically organ providers, organ providers, you know, well, there and, are, uh, there are, yeah, there are stories in China that they've used prison labor and harvested organs from prison. Yes. Labor. Yeah. I mean, as uh, grievous as it sounds, that's just sort of, unfortunately, the, the nature of uh, a lot of uh, nefarious individuals. And so I think there's possibly a, a portion of those individuals uh, that have sort of succumbed to that. Yeah, actually, what the Germans were doing at the time, the Nazis, you know, it was based on Nietzsche's concept of the Ubermensch, the yes. ultimate man. Right. They were trying to build, you know, mm -hmm. supermen. Yes. Right. So go read Nietzsche and uh, the Ubermensch, and you'll understand <laughs> the Liebensborn. Right. And actually, you know, a member of ABBA was a part of the Liebensborn, but we'll get to that some other time. Hmm. So from my point of view, when I look at this, I don't see these as isolated incidents. You know, like you, the first thing that popped into my head is things like slave labor. Now, mm -hmm. in that's still a lot of people for slave labor. And you have to house these people somewhere. You have to move them. And that's not trivial. Now, using Tall's map, there's supposedly an underground uh, rail system. And there's something interesting about the underground rail system. You know, Elon Musk here in California has proposed a vacuum-sealed um, underground rail system to run between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. and, and he believes that they, it can go in excess of 10,000 miles per hour, and it would be a great commuter, you know, commuter tool and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. What's actually interesting and coincides with Souter's, Dr. Richard Souter's yes, work. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. Yes, uh, Richard Souter's work is a study by Rand from the mid-70s where Rand actually proposed a vacuum-sealed a vacuum sealed, uh, rail system like Elon Musk's mm -hmm. that could go 14,000 miles an hour. Only they didn't want to run it between San Francisco and L.A. They wanted to run it between San Francisco all the way up to Seattle, down to L.A., you know, across to Nevada, to the test sites and other places and all around. So, you know, this idea that there's an underground rail system is not new. In mm -hmm. fact, for many years, there was a thing called the Taos hum where people would be in Taos, New Mexico, and they'd hear a bizarre humming sound. And mm -hmm. no, nobody could ever identify it. And they would say that if they put their ears to the ground, that they could hear mechanical sounds under the ground. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have attributed that to the idea that there's an underground rail system. Now, right. Right. Now, if you need to... If you need to move large numbers of people without anybody seeing, an underground rail system would be really awesome for that. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that what are you doing with these people? Are they going to live underground for the rest of their lives? Is there some sort of secret underground city under the Denver airport? Probably not. But it coincided with something else that I was interested in and that I'm actually quite passionate about and quite consumed by, which is Alternative 3. Mm. Now, Alternative 3 for the Uninitiated is a TV show that was aired in 1977 on East Anglia Television. And it's a whole podcast in and of itself to talk about Alternative 3. But suffice it to say that it predicted the end of the world. That basically is a blueprint for Armageddon. That the, the powers that be, the shadowy people at the top, the oligarchs, 
the Illuminati, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. had determined that the Earth was going to suffer some sort of climactic event. Hmm. And in the case of Alternative 3, they believed that the climactic event would be ecological in nature. There'd be a, like an ecological collapse. The Venus Syndrome, as they discussed in the X-Files, something to that that effect. Right. Wasn't the movie uh, Alternative 3 censored quite a bit? It was. It was. When it was aired, they... Uh, you know, they pass laws and, and so that shows more of the world's kinds of shows could not be aired. And, and there was a lot of consternation about it. And really, at this point, there's only one place in the world that actually can air it on television, and that's Japan. And one of the interesting things that happened is that at the time it was broadcast in April of 70 or in uh, June of 77, supposed to be broadcast in April, but in June uh-huh. of 77, the head of NBC drama was in England. He was in London with his family, he saw Alternative 3, and he said, oh, my God, this is awesome. This is the shit. Uh-huh. Right. So he goes he goes to East Anglia and he says, look, I want to option this thing. Give me a copy. So he takes a copy back to the U.S., goes to NBC Drama and says, we're going to play this, man. We're going to play this. We're going to copy it. We're going to do something because this was amazingly successful. As part of their production process, they had to take it to something called standards and practices. They're, it's it's like a, a feel-good name for the for censorship, the censors. Uh-huh. So he shows it to standards and practices, and these guys are like, "Whoa, hold on a minute! You know, we're we're not we're not going to show that. That's bad. That's going to uh-huh. s- scare people. <laughs> uh-huh. People are going to have bad dreams, you know." And so they canceled it. So, so it it has been censored. You know, it it's been lost. Um, there there are no masters of it. Well, sort of. Christopher Miles, the guy who filmed it, he has a partial master. It's missing the intro and the outro, whatever. And th- there's some interesting stories about that. We can get into some other time. Mm-hmm. But there are three alternatives. One was to blow a hole in the atmosphere. That didn't work. One was build underground bases. Call Richard Sauter. Uh and then the third was to skip town and to go to mars by way of the moon and to try to live it out on mars until whatever ecological collapse was complete and then come back repopulate the earth to a tune of 500 million or whatever that's not in there but that's from the guidestones and and everything will be hunky-dory well one of the things that they talk about in alternative three is that when you have installations of this size, and if you listen to Captain K, you've ever heard Randy uh, talk about this stuff that he, you know, these bases are fairly large. These are not 10 people, 10 astronauts that have gone to Mars to die. You know, this isn't a, you know, I'm going to science the shit out of anything. I mean, these are real honest to God for bases, apparently. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to have a big base with a bunch of people on it, you have to, you have to think about that in terms of an actual facility. Now, just because we're conspiracy nuts doesn't mean that we're not rational people, right? I'm a, I'm a pretty rational guy. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have an underground base on Mars, you're going to need plumbing. You're going to have sewage problems. You're going to have to feed people. So you need cooks and cleaners and you need people to clear the tables. You need people to take out the trash. You know, and you're talking about rich people, so you're going to need somebody to bathe them and clothe them and do all the things that apparently we can do, but they can't do for themselves, like drive Mm -hmm. themselves around and whatever. Mm -hmm. In Alternative 3, they call these batch consignments. They had a thing called a batch consignment, basically indentured servants, slave labor, whatever you want to call them. And these people who were batch consignments were comprised of people who were from Earth, who had been kidnapped oh, and shanghaied and, gotcha. yeah, and sent to Mars to be slave labor. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Right. So if you believe Alternative 3 like I do, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense that 6,000 refugees are missing between 2014 and 2016. It's not beyond the pale that... 10,000 kids have gone missing in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't need to be the whole 10,000. I mean, the whole thing is bad. It's all yes. bad. You know, it's it's just shades of bad. Maybe 50% of them went into, into to sex trafficking. You know, maybe 25% of them were sent to Mars. 
mm-hmm. whatever. But you're still talking about a sizable, you would still be talking about thousands of people who have vanished off the face of the earth in weird ways, never to come back. Mm-hmm. And the, the really bad part about it is that in the case of the, the child labor, having moving younger people makes more sense because they can last longer. They're brought up in it. They're going to be more compliant. Mm-hmm. Or you take refugees. They're coming out of Syria. They've seen people get nerve gas. They've seen people get blown up. They've already been traumatized, traumatized. and so they're, they're desensitized, and they're actually more uh, pliable for uh, mind control as well. That's correct. And if the batch consignments do exist, then mind control would be a key part of it because you have to condition them not to rise up. You have to condition them not to fight back. You have to condition them to accept their place in the system. Right. So when I look at Pauline's map and I see these concentrations around these supposed underground facilities, I say, okay, that makes sense. Because if they're, if they're taking these people, they're going to funnel them into the underground facility. They're going to put them on the rail network. They're going to take them to a place where they can be boosted into orbit. They're going to take them from there, put them on Mars, and go, you're my slave now. So it makes a lot of sense that the, these groups of people, like Pauline said, we're talking about groups of three or four people. We're talking about groups as large as 20 or 30 people. Just think about that, Ron, that there are 20 or 30 people hiking in a group through a national mm-hmm. park, and bam, they're gone. Right. I've heard uh, instances of that, something like that occurring actually near Mount Shasta and then also by Mount Adams. And so, you know, both of those locations have some very interesting uh, stories in terms of uh, UFO sightings. And then something that I I wanted to also add is uh, some of the research I was doing about 20 years ago when I was uh, writing an article about UFOs and aliens, I uh, concluded that there was a strong relationship between occult ritual sites, top uh, secret military installations, and uh, UFO alien sightings and abductions. What do you think about that? I'm interested. Tell me more. (laughs) No, I mean, there are places, uh, they're kind of like magnetic spiritual vortexes, right? A lot of New Agers are sort of attracted to it. So there's places like in New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and also the Mojave Desert. And uh, I don't know about the statistics per se in terms of missing persons, but those three different things that I brought up about the ritual sites and the top secret military installations and the uh, uh, occurrences of UFO, alien sightings, and abductions seem to uh, line up pretty strongly that's a that's a very interesting thing though i mean if you yeah if you're able to chart that what you're seeing is the induction points these are the points where mm-hmm. large numbers of people vanish they disappear right you know they they never resurface ever mm-hmm. and that's something that's very interesting because you know what happens from what i've read in in of of Pauline's work is that when these people disappear the ones that do surface, the ones that do reappear miles away, confu- mm-hmm. they're confused, they're dazed, very much like Travis Walton. Yes. They, you know, I don't know whether they have screen memories, but I, I would suspect they probably do. Mm-hmm. But they reappear miles, I mean, miles away from where they were. And they're right. confused. Their clothes are disheveled. They've lost all their camping equipment. I mean, in some cases, you're talking about people who are trekking. When they're going, they have got a backpack on. They've got a tent, a sleeping bag. They've got food, water, everything they need to survive out there for their camping trip. They dis- mm-hmm. they vanish. They reappear. All their stuff is gone. Their clothes are disheveled. They're walking around in a daze, and they can never tell you where they've been, ever. Yeah, pretty bizarre. Ugh. I tell you. But anyway, you know, th- those are some of the things that uh, I, I concluded several years ago. 
And uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up is uh, what about the possibility of these places like these vor possible vortexes having really heavy uh, mineral deposits like quartz or what have you? Well, I have heard that. I mean, I've, I've heard that, that a lot of these uh, mystical sites have high concentrations of things mm -hmm. like quartz. You know, it's it's something that is in the literature. Right. Um, there's a, I believe there's an area up in Vancouver Island where there seemed to be a, a high number of uh, missing people, but it's also a very uh, strong occultic uh, ritual area. Uh, you know, so-called satanic, luciferian groups have uh, apparently been there, as well as other types of groups. But I mean, I, I went on a uh, ghost hunting tour in Vancouver. Oh, no, excuse me, in Victoria, in Victoria, B.C., uh, several years ago. And uh, I brought that up. And the guy was going, you know, about the uh, mineral deposits underneath the island. And uh, he said that, yeah, they suspect that sort of draws certain types of people. Um, but again, it's sort of like, it still sort of begs the question, though, with that large number of people that are missing, that, that could be part of it, but that's only still a small part, you know, I would think. Yeah, but I... <clears throat> I think what you're seeing is is various methods to induct people into the system. Gotcha. That we know that there is a linkage between occult groups mm -hmm. and some of these secret programs. Yes. That in certain situations, occult groups have been used as foot soldiers, so to speak, for you know secret programs. We we know that <clears throat> some of the people at the top who who run this stuff are. A, you know, use occult magic right, or right. occult practices. Yeah, they're Luciferian or Masons or what have you that are into, you know, a lot of malevolent shit. So, right. I mean, so it, it, it doesn't, it isn't beyond the pale that, you know, they're not necessarily sacrificing everybody or whatever, but they come in, they pick people up off the street, homeless people, whoever, they take them mm -hmm. there, they do their ritual. Then they take some of these people and then they, they funnel them into a system because their handlers say, well, you've got a quota of five people, so front the five people. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, um, you know, getting back to places like Mount Shasta and Mount Adams, even within uh, uh, Native American folklore, so we're talking maybe a few hundred years ago, they would they talked about like a, a door opening up where uh, inside of the mountain where people could go into and then sometimes the mountain would just swallow them up and they would never come out again. Or sometimes they would come out, you know, like miles away and somehow they were transformed, right? Right. So, uh, so I think some of this stuff actually occurred, uh, you know, quite a long time. That's why earlier I asked if there was a possible historic precedence but again uh, from from my understanding and from what I've heard uh, Native Americans have talked about some of these places where there's like a gateway or a, a door that opens up and uh, people venture in and sometimes they never come back well I'll tell you when it comes to Mount Adams you know I went there and there's some weird stuff there. Now I'm a I'm a pretty skeptical guy at this point. I'm mm -hmm. very rational, mm -hmm. and when I sat there at night and I watched these aircraft go I over know. my head, oh man, that was crazy. It's crazy. And I know. I think a lot of them were experimental aircraft or top secret aircraft. I mean, I I personally saw an Aurora. Mm -hmm. Fly by for those of you who know what an Aurora is. Basically, it's a top secret aircraft with a pulse detonation engine. So you see these contrails that are called donuts on a rope, right? And they're like circular contrails. There's like a normal contrail, and then mm -hmm. there are rings mm -hmm. around the contrail. 
Well, I right. saw it at night, so all I saw was flashing. It was like flash, 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 and it took off. I mean, it was going from the east to the west, high altitude, flash, 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 and it was moving so fast. But a lot of the stuff that I saw was high altitude, doing zigzags and all kinds of crazy maneuvers, mm-hmm. flying from the southeast out toward Nevada, up north toward Canada. But one thing that I did see with my own eyes that that it kind of corresponds to what you are talking about is that there, there well, there were two things actually. One was like a green, it would appear above the tree line. It was like a green circle. That like would, an orb. Like an orb. Like an orb that would phase mm-hmm. in and phase out, phase in mm-hmm. and phase out. And what you would see is when it would phase in, lights would co- go in and come out of that. And then it would phase out and nothing would happen. It would phase in and then you see lights come and go, come and go, and it would close mm-hmm. up. The other thing that I saw, and I'll be damned if I can explain what it was, is that I swear to you, I saw a door open on the side of the mountain, mm-hmm. way up high. It was like a door, like a hatch that right. slid open. Now, I didn't see anything go in and out of that, but I saw a door open, effectively. Hmm. On Mount Adams. Right. Well, I mean, that uh, pretty much coincides with what a lot of people have talked about in the past. And uh, again, it uh, sort of lines up with some of the Native American folklore in that area. Well, one of the interesting things about Shasta in particular is that the Yurok have stories that are very similar to that, that people would go up the mountain with the descended master, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and disappear. Right. But they they talked about these these mysterious people that descended off the mountain that came and, and taught them how to fish and how to hunt and how to clothe themselves and how to build you know, build structures to sleep in and and then one day the these people that were coming off the mountain, these teachers decided that that they they wanted to leave, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why they wanted to leave. It's actually kind of a laundry list, but they decided to take off. And so they just left and went north. Mm-hmm. And they left one person behind. It was a guy, and they called him the deer friend, and he was actually friends with the deer. He could, like, communicate with the deer, and he was always surrounded by deer, and he could, like, talk to the deer. And he lived amongst the Yurok for a generation, and then he got bored and and he got tired of it he missed his Mm -hmm. friends so one day he left and he went north and he vanished Hmm. and and they very specific i forget the name of these what they called them but they came off the mountain they came off of shasta Mm -hmm. and then you have the stories of people who meet lemur you know they believe they're lemurians they on the side of shasta you know there's a place called panther meadow the guy who founded the im movement supposedly met you know, some a Lemurian in the in Panther Meadow. There are stories that during the summer you can see like a a serpentine line of lights that like travels up the side of the mountain and then vanishes at the top. And they they talk about people who come into Shasta City, which is at the base of the mountain. You know, they come in and they're dressed funky and they pay for things with diamonds and jewels and weird gold Whoa. and weird shit. And then they leave mm-hmm. and they vanish. Mm-hmm. So in that context, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories about Shasta and Mount Adams about weird things happening. And and by the way, one other, I know, got a little off topic. I, I think I explained the batch consignment thing. Yes. But, <laughs> but um, one of the other things that happened to me that was a little strange is that I live in Northern California. And one night I came home. You know, things just happen, right? You just got to be open to things happening, and, and you mm-hmm. see you see shit. And I'm getting out of the car. You know, I'm a hum- I'm a normal person. I, I go to yeah. the spaghetti factory and whatever. And so <clears throat> I'm, I get out of the car, and there's a light coming out of the west. And, man, it's booking. I mean, it's really moving fast, and it's really high up. And so it's coming out of the west, and I'm thinking, well, that's kind of strange. It must be a... A satellite. I mean, it's kind of early for satellites, but, you know, maybe it's the ISS. Who knows? And over my head, it banked left going north, and it was hauling. And so I called one of my many friends in the general Portland area, actually in Salem, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, he'll know who he is. I called him up and I said, hey, there's something funky coming your way. And he, he was actually coming home from work and he said, you know what, I'm going to pull over and I'm going to watch. And so he pulls over and lo and behold, a few minutes later, the, the entire transit time is like 10 minutes. He sees this light fly over his head, going north at high speed, high altitude, mm-hmm. ten, like 10 minutes. And so he's like, well, that's bizarre. So he called a friend of his in Washington State. So right. his friend is curious. So his friend goes out. And he says, there's something coming. You've got to go outside right now. So he goes outside on his back porch, gets his binoculars, and he sees this light coming mm-hmm. out of the south. And it's booking. I mean, it's going really fast. And it went into that triangular formation of, of Rainier, Hood, and Adams. Mm-hmm. It creates a, a kind of triangle. Mm-hmm. The guy said that it went to the triangle between Hood, Adams, and Rainier. Right. And it stopped. Hmm. And it hung over that, because he could see Hood and, and Rainier. And it was between Hood and Rainier, and he could see, with his binoculars, he could see, um, I think he could see Adams. And he said it just hung there. They just stayed there for the longest time. And then it slowly lowered, and as it lowered, it vanished. Right. I know that there uh, were people here in Oregon, actually, who also saw the same type of light that was uh, going at a very high speed up north. Yeah, we calculated that it had to have been going in something in excess of, like, Mach 9. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it was fast. It was fast. But the interesting thing, since we got off on a bit of a tangent here, the, the interesting thing is is that it flew to that triangle between Hood, Rainier, and Adams, mm-hmm. and then it just vanished. Right. That everything seems to go to that triangle between Hood, Rainier, and Adams and vanish. Right. Crazy stuff. Well, and, and I know from having actually gone to the foot of Mount Adams, you know, that there there are some really strange and funky stuff that, that appears in that place. And I'll be damned if I can tell you what some of it is. Right. So um, getting back to the uh, missing people at yes. the national parks. Yes. Now, now, is this phenomena also occurring throughout the world? I don't know. Okay. I mean, what I know is I've seen news reports of large groups of people disappearing in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. You know, places where there are civil wars, there's starvation. Sure. You know, and some of those people could be killed in a civil war. Some of those people could mm-hmm. have starved to death. Some of those, you know, let's be reasonable here. But you can't account for everybody that way. Yes, that is true. Right. I mean, you know, you, you look at, at the Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia, you know, Pol Pot supposedly killed millions of people i mean that's a lot of bodies yeah that's a lot of bodies very true right so you know from my point of view when i look at these when i look at six thousand uh you know refugees disappearing in two years and i look at ten thousand children i mean the missing Missing migrants, you know, they they say that that there have been 971 deaths or missing people so far in 2016. I mean, it's been four months, and there's already, you know, close to a thousand people that have died or gone missing in Europe. Mm-hmm. Europe is not the third world. Europe is a highly organized, structured operation. I mean, if you've ever been to Europe, you know it, it's their cities that, you know, they have transit police they have police they have vacation hotspots they have you know the idea that that 5000 children could go di- missing in italy i mean that's insane jeez 5000 yeah yeah that's, that's crazy. just that's just way too many way too many i mean even if you're even if you're uh you know you're trafficking for slaves mm-hmm. or or whatever all bad, but mm-hmm. even if you're trafficking five, you know that people, five thousand is a lot. I mean, that's that's a lot of people to have vanish. True. So I guess my my question would be: Do you think that there are um, underground caverns? You know, vast uh, underground 
facilities that can accommodate all these people? Absolutely. You know, there's a mountain in the Urals <clears throat> in Russia mm-hmm. called uh, Yamatau. And originally, I guess it was designed to to hold what's called the dead man switch, the dead hand switch. Um, this notion that if we got into a nuclear war, that if the the hierarchy of the Soviet Union lost control of the the nuclear arsenal because they were dead, because we nuked them, that there was an automated pr- process by which launch codes would be sent out to all the remain- surviving nuclear missiles, whether they're land-based, uh, submarine, aircraft, whatever, this system would automatically send out launch codes to everybody and tell them to go hit us as hard as they can. So it was originally designed to be that. Mm-hmm. And basically they hollowed out an entire mountain. And this is not a small mountain. I mean, it's really, really big. Right. You know, there there are military installations adjacent to the mountain that hold like 30,000 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mountain is massive. And they, they carved out a huge, huge facility within it. Now, they later supposedly moved the dead hand switch to a place called Kosmatev, which is another mountain like 150 miles north, mm-hmm. because they're having communication problems with Yamatau, and they they sealed up Yamatau. But the, this mountain is massive. If you could undertake the engineering program to build that bunker, mm-hmm. you absolutely could build a bunker. I mean, look at the Germans, the Nazis in World War II. You know, as we were bombing them, and they realized that we were bombing them, and we were bombing them into oblivion, what did they do? They built massive underground factories that held mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people. I mean, right. We see it time and time again that we have the capability, especially as Souter points out with nuclear-powered boring machines, mm-hmm. that we can build massive underground installations. And you would never even know that they were there because they take the, the excess dirt back through the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So they could, you know, they could build a massive underground bunker under my feet, and I would never, ever know. Right. Actually, um, I recall talking to Ralph Epperson several years ago, and we were talking about uh, Albert Pike, and, uh, you know, he was the uh, one of the founders of the KKK, and he was also Grandmaster of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. And also Jesse James, who was also a Masonic brother, and... Uh, they were both part of the uh, Knights of the Golden Circle, and I know that they were considering about putting together an underground railroad system uh, because actually Jesse James supposedly mapped out a lot of the caverns along the south, uh, but you know apparently he died. Although a lot of people think he they just he just staged his death, so it never came into fruition. But that would have been something if they had already started, you know, putting together that underground railroad system. Because I know those caverns, like through New Mexico, parts of Texas and Oklahoma, Kansas and Missouri are really vast. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I had a conversation once with a guy named Guy McPherson. Mm-hmm. And Guy McPherson is a very interesting guy. He's He has done a lot of atmospheric research he was a professor at the university of arizona and he has a stellar academic background guy mcpherson will argue to you that now listen to him argue it obviously Hmm. but i believe that that he he goes back to the powers of being knowing that we were ecologically screwed in the 1800s that you know for me my journey starts in the 50s the in the 50s there was a a pioneering study done by Scripps Oceanographic Institute where uh, a guy was studying phytoplankton and he realized that the phytoplankton could not scrub the CO2 fast enough and was functioning at 50% of the capacity that they should. Mm -hmm. McPherson goes further back. McPherson goes back into the 1800s and he says that these, you know, some of these magnates of the 1800s knew that industrialization was causing too much damage and they knew at mm-hmm. that point that we were going to have a problem. They just kept kicking the can down the road. And if you take that and tie it together with Walter Bosley and his research into the arrows of the mid-1800s and, and the mysterious airships of 1897, you know, he's found compelling evidence that, that things like the bell, 
this mm-hmm. mysterious power source that the Nazis developed at Derisi, that he's found evidence that the, that that power system exists in a rudimentary form inside these arrows, these dirigibles. Mm-hmm. Right? So if he's correct and and what you're saying is correct, you know you're going back into the mid 1800s, knowing that there's going to be a problem, knowing that they have the the technology to to power these dirigibles. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows what else, right? And mm-hmm. and now they're mapping caverns. So you see the early implementation of Alternative 3, from my point of view, now pushing back into the 1800s. Right, right. Because why, why else would you buy, build, buy, build a vast underground railroad network? You're hiding something. What are you hiding? You're moving people, moving stuff. Why would you map out caverns? Right, well, what... You know, Jesse was doing is, you know, him and his gang were like robbing banks and trains and, uh, you know, hiding a lot of that loot underground in, in various caverns. But, uh, you know, also what they were trying to do is trying to uh, revive the uh, sort of like uh, the underground movement. Confederate movement, sort of the post-Civil War Confederate movement, and but they were going to do it in a, a more clandestine, uh, subversive way. And that's entirely possible. But the, the other thing you have to remember is that if you're going to move around that quantity of people, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have some sort of a power structure. Yes. So maybe maybe the the Knights of the Golden Circle were an early entrant. If, if if McPherson is correct, and then they knew in the mid 1800s that we were facing down the road sometime, and you know how these things work, mm-hmm. that everybody's like, well, climate change will happen in 20 years, so I'm not going to worry about it today. Well, and they kept kicking the can down the road, and and now you know today, you know I live in a state that for two years it basically didn't rain. Right. Right. You know, it's mm-hmm. no longer a situation where you can say it doesn't exist or it's going to happen tomorrow or the day after the day after, you know, a lot of these changes we're starting to see now. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago amongst climatologists that they were seeing that this thing called the, the, the North Atlantic conveyor, it's a, like a conveyor belt that moves fresh water and salt water around within the Atlantic. And it really drives the ecology of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it drives the climate of Western Europe and, and the Eastern United States that this thing they really believed that it could possibly shut down, that the the salinity was no longer there. The conveyor appeared to be slowing. And a lot of people were had some pretty dire predictions mm-hmm. about what could happen. And, you know, it, it is the it is the basis for the day after tomorrow, you know, and and. Art Bell's book with Whitley Strieber, The Coming Global Superstorm. You know, the, these these were all based on that notion of the conveyor shutting down. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, you know, it's no longer a situation where you're kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road. The the can's finally been kicked down the road far enough, and now we see it. But if, if McPherson is correct, that they knew about this stuff in the 1800s, mm-hmm. if Bosley's correct, that they had that kind of high technology in the 1800s, who knows what they were doing? Right. I may be 100 years too late. I mean, they they may have started this whole program 100 years before I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm really starting to think along the lines of some sort of interdimensional gateway they're utilizing to sort of uh, – usher these these people into you know like herd them into i mean that's that's what i'm thinking well it's possible you know i'm 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 more of the conventional side that right you know i'm looking for big spaceships or rockets that can carry these sure but no i mean it's 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 absolutely correct i mean i swear to you that i saw a green oval appear Mm -hmm. spontaneously appear Mm -hmm. above the tree line on mount adams things go in and out of it and then it closes it opens it goes in and out i mean maybe it's a localized wormhole maybe it's some sort of a bizarre you know ether vortex that these people have figured out how to create i mean we know we know from studies that that the government has been after that kind of stuff that the 
they've invested time and effort into trying to understand how to spontaneously create wormholes, how to create vortexes that that can move things around because, you know, it's efficient, right? If if I can <clears throat> open a vortex mm-hmm. where the other end of it is Mars and I can push some cargo into that and it magically appears in Mars two seconds later, that that's yeah. fantastic because now right. I don't have to hide a big UFO-looking thing. I don't have to crew it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to fly it. You know, supposedly it takes like two weeks to get to Mars. I don't have to fly this thing for two weeks. I can do it in 10 seconds with the transporter. Right, you right. Know? So that makes total sense. And the crystal thing is supposedly a big part of that, that the, that the way that the crystals vibrate allow these mm-hmm. vortexes to be open. Right. So like I was saying earlier, these really heavy mineral deposits, these mineral veins, uh, they're located all around the planet. But the more dense and the more vast they are, it appears that there's more of these vibrational qualities that exist. And, uh, you know, hence a lot of these uh, mystical and magical sightings or occurrences happen. Well, so, you know, hopefully we answered uh, Taylor and Talon's query about missing people in the in the national parks. Um, you know, that that's a couple theories for you. Um, I hope that kind of explained it. You know, we've we've reached pretty much the end of our show. So already, <laughs> yeah, Uncle Olaf, oh Uncle Ron. <laughs> Well, we'll have more for uh, next week's show. I'm, I'm certain. I am. I am absolutely certain. So, uh, new issue of Paranoia is coming. We're working on it. Uh, we're collecting articles. I just got contacted today by a, a couple of guys that have a, a very interesting uh, comic book called the Crypto- Cryptocracy. Uh, that oh are, yeah. yeah! As a matter of fact, uh, Clyde Lewis is going to be featured in that as well. Well, they. They are big fans of paranoia. Yes. Yes. And uh, I am talking to them about uh, putting some stuff into the magazine on occasion. And Oh, that would be great. That'd be a, a really good um, collaboration for sure. Oh, yeah. And maybe some comics that explain some of these things like the Montauk Project or whatever. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I also um, I came across through Mr. Lobo our favorite horror host over at OSI74.com. Mm-hmm. Um, a very interesting thing. There's a guy who is making a film or has pretty much made a film, and he's finishing it up, about conspiracy theories related to Plan 9 from outer space. Oh, wow. Yes. The the mysterious conspiracies of Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted this guy, and, and he was nice enough to give us an article so we're going to have an article about the mysterious conspiracies of Ed Wood. Man, this issue is going to be jam-packed. I don't know how we're going to get all these articles in one magazine. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Huh? I don't know, Ron. My brain is exploding. Buy that T-shirt, <laughs> by the way. Hey, I'm waiting for mine, too. It's but, coming. Uh, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing your mind since 1992. But it, it is an awesome T-shirt. Check it out. Go to ParanoiaMagazine.com. Uh, click on the Buy Crap button, and uh, you'll see T-shirts. And we have a we have a couple of awesome T-shirts in there. Uh, I'm working on one for the podcast. Figure why not? Um, but that's that's kind of where we're at. We've got a massive magazine coming. You know, I I I just yeah, I'm I'm working on the layout too. Uh, we're gonna have some new um, new sections like the. Uh, Ask the government plant, you know, submit mm-hmm. your questions for the government plant, and he will right. answer them uh, as only the government plant can do. Now, so who is the government plant? I am That's not like... I am not at liberty to tell you who the government plant oh, okay. is. I can okay. just assure you that he is a government plant. Wow. Wow. A ficus or... Yeah. <laughs> a f- Rhododendron. Or rhododendron. <laughs> A lily, <laughs> whatever. Okay, stay tuned for that government plant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but please submit your questions. The government plant is waiting. Uh, you know, and we have some other weird stuff that we're putting in there. So it it is, it's going to be a big one, and I'm I'm hoping people will enjoy it. 
Sounds really good. Hey, I enjoyed this uh, show. I, I love I this show. A lot. I yeah. love this show. I, I learn a yeah. lot too. And yeah. and I it's my favorite podcast, Ron. I would venture to say it's mine as well, Olaf. So let's do it again next week. Next week. And remember everybody, you know, we try to get these out on Sundays, but you know, it might be Mondays or Tuesdays. We're just flexible that way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So be excellent to one another. And take good care and keep the faith. All right. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Sponsored by Paranoia Magazine. Read it now. Paranoiamagazine.com Intro theme, The Guide, was composed by Scott Moon. ScottMoon.net Outro theme, Fighting Trousers, is by Professor Elemental. ProfessorElemental.com Voiceover written and performed by Mr. Lobo, host of Cinema Insomnia. Watch new episodes on OSI 74. Visit us at OSI74.com We are resuming control. For now.